as Americans, we love to talk about hell, don't we? I love to talk about hell. We use that word in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different uh, parts of speech. By the time it's all said and done, I think it's probably one of the, I don't know, it's, I haven't done any surveys here, but it's one of the most used words, uh, but it's certainly one of the most misused words uh, in our vocabulary as well. We use it to describe the temperature, right? How hot things are. We, descri- we use it to describe fury unleashed, as in I'm going to give it to them or they're going give it, to give it to me. We use it, and this is where it's confusing, we use it in the positive way, you know, as far as what a good movie it was or what a good event it was. We use it in the negative way, you know, as far as how I'm feeling or how you're looking or how bad something tastes. We, we use it as an interjection when we smash our, our finger, you know, with, with a hammer or we turn down the wrong way on a runway street. We, we use it in lots of different ways and lots of different confusing ways. I think it gets, again, most, most parts of speech. Uh, we use it about our life when our life is not going well and we don't want to ever belittle anybody's hard things that they deal with in life because there are some very horrific things. But when we refer to our life as hellish or as a living hell, then one of two things are true. Either we uh, have a profound ignorance, I think, of what the Bible really says about hell or we have a, a profound um, apathy towards what it says about hell. Now, again, talking about hell is not a modern or an American thing. I mean, someone who really liked to talk about hell lived a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, and named Jesus. And, and if, in fact, it's true that to the extent that something, is, uh, to the extent that something is, is recorded in Scripture, it's to that extent that it's important, if that's true, then hell must be very important, at least to Jesus, who spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. Uh, Jesus, who in two-thirds of his parables refers to hell. And, you know, the, the hard thing or the wild thing for us is he doesn't mix up the meanings as he talks about hell. It's always the same meaning. And when you realize it's always about eternal judgment, it's not very humorous. As a matter of fact, it's a bit offensive. You know, I can't believe that. Uh, it's a very difficult, very difficult doctrine. But, but I, I wonder this. I wonder this about me. I wonder this about you. That if we could spend just a few moments actually in hell and then brought, were brought back, how radically different our lives might be. How our priorities and values and, and thoughts and decisions and the little things that we like to get upset about and, and anger. I don't think they would get us upset anymore. I think our checkbook and our calendar would be radically altered if we could just spend a few minutes in hell. What we want to do this morning is we want to, we can't do it experientially, obviously, but we want to look at what Scripture says about hell, visit hell, and see how that might impact us. Now, I know a key question is, okay, hang on, hang on. What are you doing talking about hell? That's fine, fine. But why talk about it on Palm Sunday, for crying out loud? You know, donkeys and palms and those kind of things. What is the deal with hell? And I think the two are very closely knit, because the bottom line is this. If there was no hell, there would be no, no Palm Sunday. This is the reason why he came. If there would be no hell, there would be no need for his, his coming. And so, again, we want, we want to look at, at uh, this aspect of his kingdom. Because if Jesus came as a king, that begs a pretty important question. What's his kingdom like? Before we start shouting Hosanna, we probably need to ask, 
What does this king represent? What is this kingdom about? And as we look at this very difficult aspect of his kingdom, and it is part of his kingdom, we need to ask ourselves where this impacts us and how this impacts us. If you've got your Bibles, if you look to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And there's a Bible. It should be in the pew in front of you. You can grab that. We're going to be looking at a small parable, not a very popular parable, but an incredibly powerful parable. And beginning in verse 47, it's, again, possible that Jesus was sharing about his kingdom, that somebody would ask, what about those, Lord, who never make it in your kingdom or who don't care to get in? Let's start in verse 47. It says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, again, as we start at the beginning, once again, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, you've got to stop there because you've got to define the kingdom of heaven. Lots of different ideas about the kingdom of heaven. And if you are on the New Testament challenge, which I hope you are, if you haven't yet, you can pick up your New Testament challenge at the info booth. You will read often about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or Jesus referring to the kingdom. That's that's very important because the folk that he came to, even that Palm Sunday, had an understanding of what his kingdom would be. And they understood that the kingdom and the Messiah, he would come and the Messiah would oust the the Romans or whoever was in charge at that point, if it wasn't Israel, and would put Israel back to that place of global supremacy. That's really what the bottom line was. Now, it's important to realize these guys didn't pull this out of thin air because there's an awful lot in the Old Testament that says that's absolutely right. That's what's going to happen. That's what the Messiah will do. He will set up his kingdom. That's what the Messiah is going to be about. That's what he's going to do. But there were some other references in the Old Testament that they skipped over. Maybe they couldn't put the two together. They couldn't understand it where it said he would come as a suffering servant first. And so, so Jesus is trying to clear up, clear up some of the misunderstandings about his kingdom. When you read about the kingdom, you're going to read two different aspects of it that you'll see over and again. And you'll wonder, what is this about? The kingdom of God has an already aspect to it. Jesus will speak of the kingdom in the present tense, as, as in the kingdom of God is among you. But more often than not, he speaks of the kingdom of God in future tense. As in, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come. Not here yet, because if it was, you wouldn't have to pray for it to be here. There's a sense in which the kingdom has already been started. It's here, but not here yet completely. And a good way to to picture this is is when God set up his world, everything, 100% of everything, people and everything, were in subjection to him. All right? But when sin entered... Scripture lets us know that 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 shifted. God still retained his sovereignty, never gave that up. But now Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Now he has incredible authority. Now everyone who is born is a default system locked into his kingdom. 
When Jesus came and Jesus lived and he died and he rose, what he did is he broke the power of hell, of Satan, and he started a, a, a journey to, to liberate the captives of that kingdom and bring them into his, to replace that kingdom of, of chaos with his kingdom of love, to, to replace that kingdom of, of hate and war with his kingdom of truth, to replace that kingdom of misery with the kingdom of joy and a kingdom of stress and anxiety with a kingdom of peace. That's what he's all about. And he is seeking rebels, revolutionaries, the church, to storm the gates of hell for the purpose of getting capturing, recapturing, bringing people back into the rightful kingdom under the rightful king. It's warfare stuff. And that's what, what hopefully FAC is about. That's what his church is supposed to, to be about. And so, so here, again, the question might come up, well, Jesus, what about those folk who, for whatever reason, don't choose to get into your kingdom? Maybe they just assumed everybody would, would, would gratefully open their arms and say yes. But some folk were saying no, and they couldn't understand this. Well, Jesus, what about those people? And so Jesus brings this up here in this parable. And the, the first thing we know, notice is that according to the, in the final judgment, everybody will be caught. Everybody will. Now, this is this is really radical for our culture because we, 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 we bristle against things like this. What do you mean everybody's going to be caught? You know, I, I, everybody should have their own own standard and their own authority. And no one should be judged by anybody else's authority because, you know what? All religions are good and all everything everybody chooses. If they've chosen it, it's fine and it's good and nothing is any better than anybody else and on and on and on. Uh, they have this mindset. Which is, of course, nonsensical. Um, if you think uh, Nazism. Uh, Nazism is based, believe it or not, initially on, on faith, on Christian principles. Who here would say that Nazism is equal to every other world religion? Where they annihilate uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Who would say that it's good? No, we would say, no, that's, that's not real good. And if you say that in your heart, you've already opened the door to say all religions are not equal. Now the only question is, who's the judge? Well, God's the judge. He's, he's established that. Here, when he talks about, about the net... Fishermen had two different kind of nets they would use. They would have a smaller net. They would just cast it out into the, the sea. It had weights all around. It would sink down. And just about the time at the bottom, they would pull it. and it would come to a close, almost like a big big bag. And they would pull up. And, of course, they had whatever was in it. But the net that's mentioned here is the drag net. And the drag net would be staked on shore. This thing's like a half mile. It could be half a mile long. And the, they would go out with their boat. And they would drop their, their net, weighted at one side and buoyed at the, at the top. And they would just make a half circle. They'd come back to shore. And then the team would just start pulling this thing in. And everything that was out there would be caught. I mean, everything. And, and when Jesus says all kinds of fish, he's referring to people from every race and every nation and every religion and every era and every socioeconomic group. Everybody is caught. Everybody's in. We recognize the scripture says this over and over again. Lots of places. Uh, Hebrews nine says that it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the, the judgment, everybody, you, you can't escape the God. This makes sense, right? If there is a God, we would expect that we would all stand before him one day. If he created us, this makes sense to us. And so this is, is, is the first truth. Jesus is going to talk about the judgment. These folk who, who, who are saying they're not in, let me tell you, the kingdom of God 
will embrace them one way or the other. They cannot escape. It's not, it's not just one option among many. They will be a part of this one way or the other. Everybody is in. The second thing that he mentions here, though, it's very fascinating, especially in, in our world, in our culture, maybe even our culture here in Erie. And that is this, that everybody will be classified or will fall into one of, of only two categories. Everyone will fall into only one of two categories. Says, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down in the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this again was a picture that these folk had seen at the, the, the Sea of Galilee multiple times. They've done this. When they go fishing, they would collect their fish. And they would sort them into two piles, that which was marketable and that which was not. It wasn't necessarily on the whether the fish tasted right. It wasn't necessarily it's moral that fish was moral or not. It was these guys hit their standard. These guys would be marketable. And for whatever reason, they're too small or they weren't kosher, whatever else. These were not marketable. There were two piles. Just two. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus is talking to folk who are into farming more than they're into fishing. And he says at the end of the age, you know, what's going to happen. The angels are going to go and they're going to separate everything in the field into two piles. Just two. You got wheat and you got weeds. Just two piles. Not a third pile. And the weeds will be burned. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking to those who are into ranching or animal husbandry more than they are fishing or more than they are agriculture. And he says at the end of the age, what's going to happen? This is, goes over this again and again. He really wants us to understand this. That what's going to happen is that they're going to separate the people into to two groups, just like a shepherd would separate his flock into sheep and goats. And the goats to eternal fire. Only two categories. Now, why this is so important for us is, is uh, because you are in one of those two categories. Or one day we'll be designated in one of those two categories. The righteous or the unrighteous. Let me ask you, which one, do you, which one are you in? Now, you might look at that and scratch your head a little bit and go, ah, I don't know if I call myself righteous. You know, there was that one time and there's that one thing and that one habit and that one action. I don't know if I call myself righteous. But I wouldn't call myself in wicked either. You know, that's the Adolf Hitler people on the stall. I'm not in that category. You sure there's not a third category? There's no, that's not a third category. So which one, which one are you in? Which one would God tell you you're in? You say, well, okay, well, um, tell me. How many people are in each category? What, what are my odds here? What, what, what is it? Well, the, the scripture is, is easy enough with this one. And he'll go straight up. He'll let, let us know where that's at. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Listen to this. For wide is the gate. I'm in, verse, I'm in Matthew 7, verse 13. For wide is the gate. And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So not a whole lot of folk are in that first category. Luke chapter 13 says, someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus must have said something to make him realize that not everybody gets in. So, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said, listen to this. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try. And these guys are trying. These are not just folk who are blowing them off. They're trying. 
but they will not be able to enter it. Now, this kind of changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Changes the landscape. There's only two categories, just two, righteous and the unrighteous. And and, and there are very few people in this uh, righteous category. And you, you know one of the reasons why this is so significant for us today is because there are faiths out that teach that there's a third category. That there's a second chance. That you can live as how you want to down here. And as long as you're claiming Jesus somehow, that's okay. But then you're going to go to a third place. And in this third place, you will kind of pay your dues, you know, and all those wild oats that you sowed and stuff. Well, you'll take care of that payment then. And it may be a while, but sooner or later, ultimately, you will get to heaven. That's that's the thought. But but that's not what Scripture says. Luke 13 again. He says, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, once the door's shut, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. No second chances. Now, a problem with this thought, this theology out there that there's a second, we're all going to have a second chance. You can go to this third place. Two things wrong with that. First of all, that does promote a moral uh, laxness, doesn't it? I mean, I can just do whatever I want to do down here. Yeah, I know I should try to be good and all. But after it's all said and done, I mean, I'll go to this third place and I'll pay my dues. And ultimately I get into heaven like, you know, yeah, what is the scope of eternity? What's just another couple of hundred years, thousand years? It doesn't really matter because I'll be there eventually. But, but the worst part with that teaching is Jesus doesn't know anything about that third place. Every single time he talks about the final judgment, there's two places. There's just, just two categories. Uh, in Matthew 7, he talks about two ways. He talks about two trees. He talks about two builders. You've got a foolish and a wise builder. Only two. There's only two categories. And if, in fact, we're going to base our future, our eternity, I mean, if this this thing is true, we're going to base our eternity on something that Jesus doesn't even hold to, you'd think that you'd sit back and go, well, maybe I need to reevaluate. Maybe I need to check out what Christ says about this. This is a pretty important thing. In Matthew chapter 7, because it's something that's already, we've already come out, we've already come across And that's, that's this idea that being close, it's how do you get in that righteous category. Well, being close isn't going to get you there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who, he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now, look at the stuff these guys did. And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, some observations with these folk. Okay, first of all, these are good people. These are, these are not members of the Hell's Angels, right? These guys are members of your church. These guys are, 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 are doing some good things. These, these are good people doing good things. Now, second thing you observe about these folk, though, I mean, that word, Lord, Lord, I mean, that's God's covenant name. These folk, their theology is right in some ways. They know, but they never did question whether or not they were actually in, never even entered their mind. Of course I'm in. And, and third thing you observe about these folk 
And this is the tell, tell sign here. Why do these folk think they're in? Why, why do they think they should be admitted? You know, if, if you go do a survey on the street and you ask folk, why should God let you into heaven? You know, you know number one answer you're going to hear. Done good stuff. And they'll rattle off the good things they did. And that's what these people are doing. Well, look at the stuff I did. Of course I should be in. Everybody doesn't prophesy, but I prophesied. Everybody can't work miracles, but I, I've, worked, I've done some big stuff for you. This is why I should be in. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't deny that. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you did not. Come on, you're exaggerating. It wasn't that great of a thing. And Jesus doesn't go on. Well, he, he, yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. That's yeah, pretty, pretty good. Uh, but Jesus' reasoning was, I never knew you. You did lots of good stuff. You're very religious. You were. But I didn't know you. You know, is it possible to be part of the Christian religion and not know Christ? Jesus is saying, oh, yeah, you can do lots of good things for me and not, not, not know me. There's, there's no second chance. There's no only two ways. And so, again, you ask yourself, what category am I in? Please, I, I sure hope that if, in fact, there's somebody here this morning who's thinking I'm going to get in because I did good things or, or I'm going to get in because via that third place, I would pray that you would check Scripture because Jesus does, Jesus does not know of such a place. There's a third aspect that we see here in the text. Matthew 13. And that's, that's this. Everybody's going to get caught. Everybody's going to be classified into one of only two categories. And the third thing is this. And this is the hardest one. Everybody in that second category will be cast into hell. Now, just soak on that for just a second. And that is a hard, hard thing. That is a hard, hard thing. No question about it. I don't. That's a hard, hard thing. And so what folk do sometimes, because it's just a very difficult thing, they say, you know what? I, this, philosophically, my, my, this, is, this is blowing my mind. How can I hold to a literal hell and yet hold to a loving God with the other hand? And, you know, I just struggle. I can't put those two together. And so what we do often is we, we either just ignore the doctrine completely. Yeah, I'm just going to move on. Put it out of my mind. I'm not going to deal with it. Or we do what many folk today in the in the church, and I would they were used to maybe used to be evangelical church until they came out with this, is redefine hell. Hell is a bad existence here down here. Hell is a bad self-image. Hell is one of those type of things, uh, and end up twisting and denying an awful lot of what Jesus says about about hell. And then some folk will just straight up go, yep, that's what it says. And nope, don't believe it. Just choose to not, not believe that. That's, that's certainly an alternative as well. But, but when he talks about this place, call it hell, call it whatever you want, where the angels come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've got to ask yourself, if that's not hell, what is that? What does that mean? In other, other place, Scripture talks about this place where there's weeping and, and, and gnashing of teeth. I mean, it's a place of great pain as wailing. Now, the word wailing refers to an emotional pain. 
Hell is a place where there's incredible emotional pain. We just think, well, it's going to be hot and we're going to be hurting physically. But, but there's an emotional pain. Now, you know as well as I do, living, if you live your life any amount of time, that sometime the emotional pain can hurt a lot worse than the physical pain. I had a guy in my car years ago, we're driving, and he just uh, suffered a pretty substantial re- relational loss. And he loved this gal, and uh, she loved him too for a while. And she left him, and we were, we were driving, and I, I put it on the table. Man, how you doing with this? And he was quiet for a second, and then he just started banging my dashboard. And it's getting harder and harder, and he just came unglued. I and mean, he just freaked out. He was thrashing about my car and screaming at the top of his lungs and pulling at his hair. He was just, that's wailing. That's wailing. Utter hopelessness. You cannot do anything about it. There's no hope. That's what Jesus says hell will be like. Uh, hell will also be a place of, of isolation. You know, I hear folks say, I want to go to hell. All my friends will be there, you know, and, and we're going to have fun together and no rules and no regulations and no wet blanket religious people. You know, it's just going to be one big tailgate party. Yeah. Well, if there's no rules and no regulations and no police and no judges, do you, would you want to be at such a place? I mean, think about that for a second. You're at, you're at your tailgate party and somebody comes who's bigger than you and hits you and steals your wife and uh, kills one of your children and walks away. And there's no such thing as justice, remember, or police or judges or rules. It's all it's, it's fine. Do you want that kind of an existence? I. Plus, and it almost doesn't doesn't matter because that's not the way it's going to be. Matthew eight twelve, Jesus refers to hell as a place of darkness. And when he's referring to hell as darkness, what that is, is isolation. Um, we know that the worst deal we can throw at some some criminal today is solitary confinement, being alone. And in, in this life, I know when, when you're going through something really hard, but still, when someone comes up and they put their arm around you, or they tell you they're praying for you, or they give you their phone number and they say, man, you call me whenever I am here for you, somehow we take, we take that really does bring a comfort. That gives us hope. That helps us get through. But Jesus is saying in hell, you are alone with yourself. There's nobody there to put their arm around you or to care that you're hurting. You're alone. Now, the opposite of this, heaven is referred to as a city. And we think of city, you know, Chicago and New York and who wants to go there. But but the idea is, is that the city is is community. It's people. It's you know, as well as I do, that the best things in this life are relationships. We get that mixed up sometimes and we work in materialism, all this. But then when we stop, something happens and we have to stop and evaluate. We realize my relationships is what it's all about. Nothing is better than, than good relationships. Can you imagine how good your relationships may be in heaven? It's an incredible, incredible place for relationship. But in hell, no relationship. You're, you're, you're alone. Hell is a place, Scripture says, of physical pain. Luke 16. Let me, let's, let me point this, this out. This is a interesting story. Luke 16. Verse 23, it says, in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony 
in this fire. He's in agony. Hell will be a place of incredible physical pain. Just take however much physical pain you've ever had and multiply it by a, a billion and maybe you're starting to get close. Incredible physical pain. And Abraham says, uh, down in verse 26, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It's that no second chance place. Hell is, is also a, a place that goes on forever. Revelation 20, verse 10 uh, Jesus is talking that they'll be tormented day and night. Talking about hell, we find descriptions of hell being a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. What's he saying? He's saying it goes on forever. Now, we love this idea when we think about heaven, right? Fourth verse of Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Eternity is true in hell as well. When someone's been there 10,000 years, they haven't lessened their time there by one hour. We've got, we got to realize, hell, God didn't get together one time and say, you know what, let's just come up with a real bad place. What, what, what can we throw in there and make it really bad? Um, what hell is, is it's the opposite of heaven. Everything heaven is, hell cannot be. Hell cannot be what, what it, is. It, is, it is not. It, it has to be opposite of heaven. It just is. It's the opposite of, of God's presence. Even here, we see God's grace down here. We might not even know him or be conscious of him or think anything about him, but his grace covers us in, in, in some ways. In hell, all of that is taken away. All of that is gone. Now, folk might say, well, you're just trying to scare me into your religion. That's what you're trying to do. If someone banged on your door at night, and said, hey, and you finally got out of bed, your house is on fire, get out. Well, you might look around, and if it's not on fire, you know what? That person is something really wrong with them, or they're just joking with you, you're right, they're trying to scare you. But if it's true, if it's, your house is really on fire, as alarming as, as that, that warning may be, a responsible person would take action and say, you know what, okay. This is not my word. This is, is Jesus and a lot more. He has a lot more to say about it. But, but, but Jesus saying stuff to get people to follow him is opposite of everything we know about Jesus. Jesus said things sometimes it seems that made people walk away. There was one time they had a big crowd around him. And, and, and Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And the whole crowd turns and walks. His disciples are going, hey, help, come on back. He didn't mean that. Jesus, fix this. And Jesus said, no, it is what it is. It's true. Jesus didn't say things to try to get people to follow him. This is the, the same Jesus who, who wasn't in it for himself because he had no place to lay, lay his head at night. This is the Jesus that, that reached out and touched lepers. Those that, that society had marginalized. He, he, he liberated women. This is the, the Jesus that said, suffer the little children to come to me. Children were, were not an acceptable commodity at this point in history. This is the Jesus that reached out to the pained and the prejudiced and brought them hope. This is the Jesus that stood up against the religious hypocrites and the, the bureaucrats who were wielding their power. Jesus, this is, it makes no sense that he would say things, at least this, to try to get people to follow him. And so you have to ask yourself, 
Well, why did he say it then? Why did he talk more about hell than heaven? Unless maybe it's true. Maybe he knows because he's God. You know, it's, it's interesting. In, in Psalms, the psalmist says that, that God delights in the death of his godly ones because they're going to be in heaven with them. But Ezekiel lets us know that God takes no joy in the death of the ungodly. Well, why wouldn't he if they would come up to heaven? Because he knows they're not heading that direction. Now, those might not be rules that you and I would like. They're certainly not rules our society would write. But we've got to be reminded sometimes that you and I don't run the universe. God does. And maybe this is why Jesus, when he looked at Jerusalem, he cried. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen doth her brood. But you were unwilling. Because he knows. Ultimately, what will be their fate if they reject him? So let me ask you, to groups, righteous, unrighteous. Which one are you in? Which one do you think God would put you in? By the way, I've got to mention this to you. This righteous group, it gets a little bit more narrow. When Paul tells us through the Holy Spirit, there is none righteous. No, not one. Nobody's in this category. Now, now we think, because we've been trained this way, that we live off of report cards, Right? And, you know, 90 to 100 is an A, and 80 to 90 is a B, and 70 to 80 is a, a C, and, and 60 to 70 is a D, and then you kind of flunk it. And we're, we're thinking, okay, as long as I, I... No one aces this thing. I, we understand that. No one aces this thing. You know, there was that one time and all that. But still, uh, you know, I'm, I'm up there in the top somewhere. I've got to have a passing grade somehow. Well, the passing grade for heaven, God sets the standard, is perfection. You know, when I did... Uh, I remember my Greek class, I was uh, upset with my teacher multiple times because he had his like, it's like, I forget it exactly now, but it's like, it might be 97 to 100 was an A, and, and, a, and a 93 to 97 was a B, and a 90 to, to 93 was a C, and below that he just flunked you. And I said, crying out loud, what are you doing? And he said, when you are interpreting God's word, there's not a whole lot of room, a whole lot of margin for error here. With heaven... There's no margin for error because if we bring any sin into it, it's not perfect anymore. That's why God sets the standard 100%. And so we look at it and we go, okay, I guess I'm not in the righteous category. But, but the issue is this. Jesus wants us in the righteous category. And we don't get there by trying harder. Because, you know, what, even if I can ace it between now and whenever, which I probably, I'm, no, probably, I'm certain I cannot, um, I still have some stuff in the past that has to be dealt with. And let's just say that I'm really, 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 really good, and I got a 70%. Well, there's that 30% that's going to keep me out. What do you do with that? Well, that's why Jesus came to lay down his life. That's why he walked into Jerusalem 2,000 plus years ago on Palm Sunday. That's why he ended up laying down his life. That's why he rose from the dead. When he was on that cross, he took that 30%, had my name on it. And he, because he was God, was able to bear eternity in hell in that short time on the cross. My eternity in hell. And it gets, it gets better than that. Because if that's all that happened, well, my, my wickedness would be covered. But I still haven't done much of anything righteously. Scripture says that then they take all of Jesus. If you surrender your life to him, you take, he takes all of his righteousness 
that was attributed to him, and he gives it to you. And so I, I am righteous today, just so you know that. Whether my family would admit it or not, or some of my closest friends, I am. But here's why I am, not because I've earned that title. Please, please don't. I have not. But because I stand in the righteousness of Jesus and that alone. Now listen, this is how you can get into his kingdom. You can be one of those folk who are singing Hosanna. It's more important than just the singing Hosanna that we're there in our heart, that we are subjects of the kingdom. And that, that's, that's, this is so important because this side of eternity, anybody can jump from the wicked category to the righteous category. But once the door shut and we start saying, boy, I made some mistakes here. Let me change my mind. There are no second chances. It's set. And so when you, when you bow your, your, your knee to Jesus, you say, Lord, I, I recognize that the only way I'm in this righteous category is not by me. But by you having died for me, you attributing your righteousness to me and surrendering your life to him. Scripture says at that moment, that's what happens. You're a new creature. You may not feel it. There's no magic that happens. But spiritually, you're a new creature. So again, let me ask you. If the end was now, next minute is all over. What category would God place you in where you're sitting?